Welcome to the Voyager Podcast, hosted by Chris Fick and Brad Alexander. We're a weekly show about authentic faith in unlikely places. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We hope you're encouraged. All right, welcome back to the Voyager Podcast. My name's Brad Alexander. I'm here with Chris Fick. Hi. So we do this every time. <laughs> I know, where our intros are just killing it. Um, and today we have a very special guest I'm super excited about. Uh, Chris, you go way back with him, so I'm going to let you do a little introduction. Yes, my good friend and one of the men that stood with me at my wedding, Tommy Green, the one and only Tommy Green. So, <laughs> so you guys don't know Tommy. Um, if you're part of the hardcore scene, you do. Uh, Tommy was part of the, he was a uh, vo- vocalist, lead singer of Sleeping Giant, um, and is right now doing Holy Name among, he's a movie star. He is, runs a nonprofit called Run Against Traffic, and he is most importantly from Salt Lake City. No, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Give no. it up. Give it up. So, yeah, welcome, Tommy. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, well, thank you, guys. I'm really, really grateful to be with you. The holy name drop that just went out, too, if anyone's listening that hasn't caught that. It's, it's real heavy, but I encourage people, check it out. It just came out. It's good. A uh, lot of guest features on there, too, which has been cool. Absolutely. I just don't want to yell and scream anymore. And so I the music is so... Like you said, it's so heavy and like driving that I was like, it needs intensity, but that's just not me. So whenever I felt like I wanted something heavy to be happening, I just called a friend and said, will you yell? And they said, we will yell. And I said, cool, I will stand here and sing like an emo weirdo and just try not to cry, which is good. It's white flag. It's (laughs) going going back to white flag. That was was the... Yeah, I remember, oh. man. No, this Come on. I love it. It because I feel like holy name is like so you. <laughs> it's like it's like yeah. a, it's like a perfect persona of like this is Tommy. It, it's like you see yeah. the sleep, the you know the hardcore side. And we were we were in Death Star together, original Death yes. Star members, uh, yes. and your vocals Absolutely. were just so heavy. But then there's also the side white flag was like your little side project thing that was. That's what Tommy is too, a poet. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Was, was Tommy in Death Star the whole time? So me and Chris did the demo and then we were in the band. Chris dipped to go become a pastor extraordinaire. And then, cause he was in Bible college at that point. And then I stayed with them for, we did a, we did a couple tours. I put out a record with them. And then I, that was kind of when I had started you know, Bible study at that point that had turned into kind of our first like little church community. And so, and I was like a dad at that point, my daughter, Marin, I think was like two or three. And so I was just like single dad being a pastor guy in the hardcore scene. And so I dipped out of death star. So I was there for the demo and the first record. And then I think their best record is called we are the threat. And I was not in the band during that one, but it's, okay. it's one of my favorite records. So we are the threat. I was around, I hung out in the studio with them the whole time because SG was recording our first record at that point, kind of in the similar season. And I got to do gang vocals, I think, and guest vocals on that record, but I wasn't a part of the band. Eric would kind of have me in the wings to like help out if we needed it, but they didn't need it. They they did an amazing job. You did the tour too, Chris. Were you were you That's in when the I band? Left. Yeah. You left when we did the tour with Atreyu and Under Oath and God forbid, right? Yeah, I had left right before 
one of those yeah, tours okay. that was like because okay. we had mission trips I, I had signed up for and so we we're going to mexico i actually got talked about this last episode but like that was kind of like god was like you're gonna do ministry now like full full on and yeah well before all that let's um take a step back so tommy can we kind of dive into your backstory and can you tell us about like just growing up because you grew up in salt lake city right no, I grew up all over the place, but I landed in Salt Lake in uh, high school. And so I learned to drive out here. I kind of grew into the music scene out here. And so <clears throat> I've, I lived I lived a bunch of different places when I was growing up with my family. But I landed in Salt Lake, I think, at that real, you know, kind of becoming your own human kind of time. Um, and so... I was here 10th grade through a little bit of college and then me and my, um, my ex-wife and my daughter moved to Redlands, um, in 2002. And so anyway, so I, I consider myself kind of like from Salt Lake, but I'm from all over. So yes, I'm happy to, I'm happy to say whatever, what do you, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? Where should we start? No, we always say that. I'm like, where you identify being from is usually where you went to high school. That's usually like yeah. where you're like, this is where I planted my roots and this is where yeah. formed me. Um, yep. Growing up, were you like involved in the punk scene? Did you get into the hardcore scene pretty early on? What kind of influences? Was sure. there any God in your family? Was there any talk? Oh of yeah. 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 God? Yeah. I can. Yeah. That's cool. I, so I, I grew up in a, my family, um, my mom and my dad got divorced, I think, when I was like three or four. Uh, I was born in San Francisco. My mom and my dad were born and raised in the Bay Area. They got married, you know, super young. They had me. I think my mom was 17. Um, <clears throat> and my dad and my mom and I moved to St. Louis with the railroad. My dad worked for Union Pacific Railroad. And so my mom and my dad got uh, split up when I was, I think, three or four. My mom moved back to the Bay Area with me. My dad stayed in St. Louis. And so most of my childhood years up through maybe my eighth or ninth grade year, um, each summer, you know, I'd be with my mom and my, uh, then my, my mom and my stepdad during the year. And then I would go visit my dad and my stepmom in the summers. My dad stayed in St. Louis until he got a job driving the train as an engineer in 1993 or 94 and moved to Salt Lake city. Cause I had a hub here. And then as the weirdest twist of fate, is that my mom and my stepdad and I were living in Washington state outside of um, Seattle, early nineties. And my stepdad was working as a pastor. He was a music and youth pastor guy. Um, and they were like born again, Christians, more like Baptist people. Okay. And then my dad and my stepmom were kind of like Irish Catholic, just meaning that we got drunk and we went to midnight mass once a year or something like that, or, right. but mostly never, mostly never. So I, um, I didn't really respond or identify with the Christian stuff at all, but I grew up around it. So um, my stepdad and my mom, you know, that's who I spent. That was like home. And I, please forgive me. I don't mean anything, you know, crappy or anything like that. Like I love my, I love my family a lot, but it was a broken kind of deal. And I would go in the summers to St. Louis. And when I uh, would be so excited to see my dad and uh, my little brothers, I have two little brothers and my stepmom were dope. And so I'd look forward to those summer breaks and then I'd get out there and it was just a totally different culture. And so there was a lot of, a lot of drinking. And at some point, if not a couple points, it felt like every summer there'd be a few different, like pretty big breakdowns. And mm. so I think I spent my summers trying really hard to be seen and noticed um, by my father. And there wasn't enough time 
but my speed there in St. Louis was be be big enough that I would hope he would notice me, but I tried to stay really small because I didn't want to get hurt. There was just a lot, there was a lot of really like, sketchy stuff that happened and, and it was very traumatizing. So I would go out in the summers excited and I'd usually come home sort of shell-shocked and kind of stoked to get out of there and sort of guilty and full of shame about that at the same time. And then I'd get around my mom and my stepdad and they'd have this different culture and I didn't respect my stepfather, even though he's like a great man. He's really, really great, but I hated them and I hated their God and I hated their setup. And so by about 12, 13, I started um, running away and I didn't know where I fit. And, uh, and, and so I, it was like, I, I had no clue how to have an identity. Um, didn't, didn't have the shelving inside necessarily for, for self-esteem really. It was it, it, whatever people would reflect back to me. And uh, I, we moved so much with my mom and my stepdad that it was like, I would start over every year. I think I'd move, I'd go out to see my dad in the loo. And then, I, but when we came back, it's like, we, there was a few years where my mom would pick me up at the airport and go, we're going to play a game. Let's see if you can tell me where we live now. <laughs> and so oh my gosh. we'd be like wow. driving it and she'd be like, is it a right or a left? And it was funny. And we're like listening to, you know, Huey Lewis in the news and we're like having a great time, but it was like legit. Like I would, we, I'd leave. And then I'd come back and it'd be a new place and a new school and a new setup a lot of the time. And some of that was just because my parents, you know, my mom was so young. My stepdad was still, he had graduated from college in the Bay and then he went to seminary. There was just a lot of movement. And that's what, that's what led us up to uh, Washington. I remember we left seminary and we were driving north and there was two options. One was outside of Washington and one was in Anchorage or Juneau, Alaska. Oh my. And on the drive, on the drive north to figure out which church was going to say yes the Alaska place said no. And so I remember them crying in the hotel bathroom because it's like, we're going to Washington. We don't have another option right now. And I remember getting there and I was so pumped because for me, I was in fifth grade. I had been getting bullied pretty heavy in the Bay Area. And I was kind of looking forward to getting out of there. And then we landed in Washington and I was surrounded by a youth group that was full of like punk and grunge rock kids. And it's 1991 in uh, Tacoma, Washington. And so the music scene is like phenomenal and it's just like exploding around me. And all these dudes are like <laughs> trouble. <laughs> so they're sneaking around and like going and doing drugs, but listening to it, fantastic music. And I was, that's when I started falling in love with music. And it was like the birth of like, kind of the heyday of the grunge rock scene of the early nineties in Seattle. And I just remember thinking they're making their own music. I want to do that. And so I started learning how to play drums. Um, I had this friend named Brian and then these other kids, they were kind of like these alternative kids that would go to the Rocky horror picture show and stuff like that when we were like 13 and they were all into like crass and the sex pistols and all this stuff. And so it was like punk rock initially. My goal was to try to play as fast as I could. <laughs> and yeah, then, absolutely. You know, and that was kind of like my, my intro to like, you know the fat records era of like the warp tour and no effects yeah. and and all of that that was like the first I, I remember going to see them in the parking lot i think of like the kingdom in tacoma in 1992 or three and just just being so pumped on like music like but i wasn't allowed to like listen to it so i just it was like it was that was the identity crisis it was like this guy these guys jesus hates everything that i love and i'm not allowed to be myself here and so I would bounce for sometimes weeks at a time and just go stay with friends. And, and just, I was just all over the place, um, got into drugs and was just like, you know, kind of, I was really like 
whoo, man, I was right on the edge. And then I'd go to St. Louis in the summers and I'd be so stoked to see my family, but it was just very broken. And so I say that to shine a light, not on how crappy anybody else was, but the, how the level of like the lack of identity that I had and, and the quest to find identity is like the number one hunger of the human soul. Mm -hmm. And all the only people that seem to give me identity were these people that would allow me to be myself. But the problem was it just, it was so messed up. The world that I was a part of was so toxic that I just, I was finding my identity in some ways, but I was also feeding a part of an identity that was really going to become poisonous for me because as fate would have it, my stepfather resigned from the church he was at and got a job with a paper company that had a plant in Salt Lake City. And so my dad had moved to Salt Lake with the railroad. And then two years later, my mom and my stepfather and I ended up leaving Washington State and coming to Salt Lake. And so for the first time in my life as like a sophomore in high school, I had my mom and my dad in the same city again. And then that was my first introduction really to the hardcore scene, sort of like the straight, the vegan straight edge, like hardcore scene in Salt Lake City. And what, what I remember was I loved the music. And then I just thought, I don't understand why there's like this. It was very intense here. There was crazy fights. And so I just remember thinking like, this is what an interesting place. And so um, during that 10th grade year, I was really experimenting a lot with drinking. I was drinking on my own. I was trading liquor with kind of the gangster kids at my school. I was like, I just like, you know, I just was sort of like experimenting fully. And, and that was what I thought was cool. And I, I had a, a couple of run-ins where I needed to get sober. Um, I think I was like 15 and a half or turning 16. And I just ended up like going overboard. <laughs> so I, yeah. uh, it was like a three and a half day. It was a three and a half day drunk thing we did over the 4th of July at my homie Dave's house. Cause his family was out of town. And I remember waking up day three, still kind of like half hungover and just thinking like, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> yeah. And then like my dad and my stepmom, my stepmom went out of town and my dad had a crazy party at his house that went on for a few days. And I remember a bunch of his softball buddies and like, dudes from the bar scene that he was connected to all came over. And I remember like snorting stuff with like friends of his that were like super old. And it just, I felt horrible afterwards. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know if I think, I don't know if I would think this was cool if I didn't think my dad was so cool. Like I have to do something yeah. different, you know? And I was like, ah. and so I just, I remember going across the street to some friends of mine. I went, I left my dad's house after that party. I went across the street to some friends of mine that I knew were sober and I thought they were part of the scene, but I didn't know. And I just said, I think I need to get like sober. Can I hang out with you guys? And they were these vegan straight edge kids that were not like violent, but they were into all the music. They, they were super positive kind of people and they played music. And so my friend Peter, my friend Nathan and my friend John, they became like kind of my introduction into like the hardcore scene. And it was a very safe place. And I literally just needed to get my head straight. And so I knew that if you said you were straight edge in Salt Lake City, you, if you if you played with that, you were going to, there was a penalty. And so I didn't mess around and I didn't want to mess around. So I was like, I think I'm going to, after a couple months of hanging out with them, I, I was like, I think I'm going to choose to become straight edge and I'm not going to mess around with stuff because I think it's bad for me. And yeah. then I got to play music with these great kids and and that was that was my introduction to the hardcore scene. And my first show was like a catharsis clear show at like classic skating in 1996 or 1997 or something like that. So anyways, that was like where I got into the scene. Um, There's like so much I want to ask you too. There's so oh, much sure, complexity yeah. and like 
like just hearing you talk and I'm like, I went to four elementary schools before I left elementary school. So like, I know that feeling yeah. and being a product of like, not even remembering your parents' divorce, you know, <laughs> cause you were too yeah. young to remember and, and seeing multiple divorces, but yeah, the level of uncertainty you went through where it's like home is not even a uh -uh. given and you're driving to Washington, but you don't even know, like you're a kid witnessing, like we may not even have a place in Washington and you're bouncing yep. back and little side tangent. Cause I want to, I want to get into this too, but Chris and I always talk about Salt Lake straight edge as being like very cut from a different cloth. And when yeah. I was in high school, I had a friend, I don't remember her last name. Her name was Cardi, but she came, moved out and she went to high school with me. Mm -hmm. And her boyfriend came out and I was straight edge at the time. But when I like met this guy, I was like, this is a different level. He had yeah. like hand tattoos and one inch plugs. <clears throat> and I was just like, he wasn't a big yeah. guy or anything, but I just knew he was like way harder than we were <laughs> growing up in South Orange <laughs> County. And it was like, okay, Salt Lake is like, they take it serious there. It was touched by a few different things. If I can speak to that, I think it's a very, my, my dear friend, one of me and Chris's like best friends ever you know, our bro it's like a brother, um, similar Chris, I was in his wedding. I have five people that were in my line when I married my Chrissy green. And it was, it was Chris, Chris, my two little brothers, my brother-in-law, Aaron Craner and Eric Gregson. And so our homie, Eric from Redlands, you know, he said if it would be fascinating in some way to do a documentary about the Salt Lake city, vegan straight edge community in the early nineties, because there was massive militant animal rights activity that was going on. It was the birth of, it went from kind of like child's play, like we're going to vandalize stuff because we're vegetarian and we love PETA to full on direct action. There was federal charges pressed. There was people looking at 25 to 30 to life for blowing up trucks. And, wow. and I, I'm at the tail end of this, fully the tail end of it, but I ended up linking up with a bunch of people that were looking at real deal federal time. And you had dudes that were snitching on one another and looking at massive prison sentences. You had dudes getting stabbed at shows because this was not like hardcore drama. This was like, you are on tape talking to the feds. And now my brother and my brother's friend is looking at... 22 years to life in prison so we're gonna snuff you out for being a snitch like it was like real horrible i mean it was like intense and that colored a massive divide that was that was part of what galvanized the the music scene because there was real big boy decisions being made there was people blowing up uh trucks at, at mink plants there was people that were liberating animals from like fur farms there was people that blew you know i know the dude he was underage and he would laugh about it at this point but like he blew up a mcdonald's like we it was very militant and it felt very radicalized and so there's an intensity here and there was dudes in orange county that were linked up with salt lake dudes and they were all vegan strategy guys and there was some serious stuff going on wasn't it, it was also kind of like born out of fighting like young kids fighting off the skinheads oh yeah there was it, similar to orange county i feel like there was a lot of 15 to 20 year old kids fighting grown men with waist change you know what i mean like you're not allowed to be here and then the news didn't help because there was a bunch of news reports that came out in the mid 90s here that basically said salt lake city or straight edge is salt lake city's biggest gang and when that happened it put a bunch of music kids that were just down to skate together. I mean, three or 400 kids at a show are all of a sudden this huge quote unquote gang in the city. So then all the real gangsters in Salt Lake started coming out to test. And so there was gunfights and all sorts of crazy stuff that started happening because it was like, oh, you guys are a gang now? Let's see. And so it was really, it's partly why there was this antagonistic relationship between 
the hardcore scene and cops and news reporters. That's why we don't talk to them because they, they made a lot of people's lives living hell by just trying to come up with stories. And some of it was so sensationalized. It was so stupid. So anyways, and I was like a young kid. So I'm like, nobody i'm fully a new jack and these are like dudes that have been in it for years and it's super intense and very violent and it, it was very much like a proving ground and it felt like you were stepping into a thing um i haven't felt that for a long time in, in terms of the hardcore scene but it, but i remember the feeling of like you felt a bit like you're stepping into a different world and it really was like us against the whole rest of the planet which is interesting as like an abused kid you know it's just like this feels like home i've said it before like i think kids that are sexually abused i was sexually abused when i was super young um in st louis and in california um and then i was physically abused by my family and stuff like that and so when stuff like that happens and you're a little kid i think a lot of people your empathy skyrockets you start becoming really aware of what environments feel like and i almost wonder if like the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits like the discerning of environments it gets kicked on in the wrong direction it's supposed to be it's supposed to be almost like initiated in this beautiful spiritual realm of the holy spirit we're supposed to become very aware of the presence of love and the presence of god the presence of forgiveness when we get abused and manipulated at a young age our like discernment muscle kicks on too early and so we become really good at reading rooms, but we, we're lost sort of spiritually. You know what I mean? Like we, it's like we're out of tune. And so for me, I, I just remember feeling like when I stepped into the hardcore scene and I was aware of the chaos that could erupt at any moment, there was a part of me that thrived in it. I was like, oh, okay, I know how to, I know how to manage this. And it was kind of on your own terms, right? Because that's, that's part of the ident, that's part of the identity issue, I think, is, yes. is that you, it's kind of feels controllable. In a sense mm -hmm. that like, okay, I've, I've had nothing but chaos in my life, but this is chaos that I have um, a, part like, of. a part of. Yeah, like so I can find that. And so identity I think is a big deal. Like hardcore kids are hard to – I was going to say hardcore kids are hard to find like that are emotionally stable. Like <laughs> it's like why are you no, here? No, you're, you're totally right, right? Like when we're aggressive. And so it's a hyper-masculine culture. So we're talking to a, like a, a, a whole generation of people – that there's a whole lot of us that have a father gap. And I think, and whether we like it or not, it's just something that we live with. And so I think in general, like people like us that are, we're creative, sensitive hearts in, in a lot of ways, but we come up in this spot, you, you just know the rule. It's like, okay, well, if I meet your aggression with aggression and I, I learn to keep my mouth shut, I can hang out. You know, I can, I can dip here. This is fine. Like I'll be fine here because what I do know is the fury and the protective crew that I've now clicked up with, they are a holy terror to anyone that would ever try to hurt me. Right. And as long as I'm down to pay my dues with them and they know I'm a sweetheart, but at least I would fight if I needed to, even if I lost, right? Like at least they knew that I, I was there. I can be here. And so that was, I'd rather have that kind of danger on my side than uh, maybe face or deal with how, how horrible, you know, everything mm -hmm. really is. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Well, I think a lot of us that came through the punk, the hardcore scene, and I throw mm -hmm. skateboarding in there because skating and punk yeah. kind of went hand in yep. hand if you grew up in the nineties, yep. which we all did. And, um, yes. A lot of us, like it is, Chris, you always say like my all in nature. I feel like a lot of us, it's like when we find a worthy cause, we're like, okay, I'm, I'm all in on it. I'm, yes. I'm not lukewarm about it. And a lot of yep. us that have found Jesus, 
that formative mm-hmm. punk hardcore era kind of helped bridge it where I'm, it's like, I'm not going to be lukewarm about this. I'm going to be real no. about this. And I think it comes from that era of time too. And, and it's something I really love, even though a lot of us were like misfits that found a home and it was messy, you know? Yeah. But yeah. how did you end up in Redlands after? So your oh, sophomore yeah, yeah, yeah. year, your Salt Lake City, when do you move to Redlands? So what happened was I, so I, I was with my mom and my stepfather a lot of the time. What, if I could be completely honest, there was a, there was an incident between me and my old man. I was sober at this point. I think I had just gone fully sober. It was that same summer. And dude, he just like punched me out. And I don't know, I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> it was just one of those Jeez. days where he was like, he was jacked up and mad at me because he thought I was trying to be a manipulator. And I, maybe I had manipulated like every other day, but that day, but I, I did not do it that day. I just remember looking at him, like I was kind of knocked out and I remember walking upstairs and I just watched him and was just like, why did you just do that? Walked upstairs and was just like, I'm, f- I'm not doing this anymore. And I told my stepmom what had happened. And I just was like, I'm out of here. And so I didn't go back to my dad uh, for probably like three, two and a half years at that point and speak to him. For Chris, he would know, you know, I know your dad. Matt, I love my, yeah. I love my family and I love my brothers and stuff. And like, we're all just like weirdo outlaw. And so I just, I remember being with my mom and my stepdad and that was where I lived. I left that, the world of kind of the greenhouse, which sucked because I miss my little brothers and I, and I miss my dad. I miss my stepmom, but it just, I couldn't do it. And I just remember being with my mom and my stepdad, which was then all of their culture all the time. And so I, I ended up leaving home. I think I was like 17. I ended up leaving home and moving in with my girlfriend. And then I was just going to finish my senior year early because I was like way ahead. We ended up working at a clothing store together during the holidays for a Christmas season. And there was a bunch of hardcore kids that worked at this spot. And one of her friends was uh, a girl that worked at this uh, store with us named Jeannie. And when she went back to California, an old friend of hers um, named Eric like proposed to her and they were going to get engaged to be married. And all of a sudden I was like, what? And so now all these hardcore kids from Southern California came out to pick up Jeannie when No Innocent Victim came through Salt Lake on tour. And so all of a sudden now Jeannie and all these other like hardcore kids that were super kind, they were all like Christian kids. And I, I was not like at all. <laughs> I just remember thinking like, oh, these guys are great. Like and they <laughs> danced hard and there was like mad, there was mad beef. Like I remember a bunch of my friends were going to beat up everybody. And I remember sitting with Eric and like hoping that somehow them knowing me would somehow half shield it. And it was just, it was very sketchy, but I just remember thinking like, these dudes are really cool. And we were getting food with the NIV dudes. And in some way, the spirit of Christ that was with NIV reminded me of the safety and the spirit of my mom and my stepdad's house, even though I resented it and I didn't want anything to do with it. I could feel that all oh, these, these are safe people. Like these are good people. And so I just became friends with Eric and then Eric and Jeannie ended up coming back out to work in Salt Lake for a handful of months because jobs were kind of rough to come by in the IE at that point. He was trying to pull himself up the ladder doing body work and become like a hot rod builder guy. And so he came out to Salt Lake to work and do body work here because he couldn't get a job in Purdue. And so it, over those few months that they lived out in Salt Lake, I would go over and hang out with them at, at this house. They, they stayed at a house out here and the house, there was a guy that was here and his and basically his wife they were basically husband and wife um and he was a singer in a really powerful hardcore band out here he was a crazy um straight edge vegan guy he was one of like it was like a he was like kind of a head in the scene and he had been in a really horrible car accident and he'd become uh, quadriplegic and she stayed to take care of him 
And so th- they, they were kind of a notorious couple because I knew who he was. And, and so Jeannie and Eric, my Redlands friend now, stayed with them for the period of months while they were out here working. And so I would just go over to this couple's house all the time. And that's how I made, you know, Alex and Shannon's acquaintance. And, I, and it was just, I was just a kid, you know, getting ready to graduate from high school and no real direction. I was living with my girlfriend who was Jeannie's friend. And uh, Eric basically said to me one day, I don't know where you're at with the God stuff, but I feel like God sent me out here to bring you home. And I was like, whoa. And he was super stoic and he barely said nine words back then. And like, huh. <laughs> like if, he, if you were like, how are you doing, Eric? He'd be like, huh? And that was like a full sentence for him. Like everyone he, thought Eric hated him, like everyone. to some extent, because he would just sit there and he would like look at you and like look down at you. And I remember one time he's like, dude, you're one of my, you're one of my best friends. I was like, really? That's like the whole thing. So I was about to graduate high school and I broke up with this girl that I was living with. And I moved in with my old, you know, hardcore kid friend, Peter. And I was just going to be there because Eric basically said, you should come out to Redlands with us. We're getting ready to go back to Redlands. And so the plan was I was going to graduate. I was going to walk at my graduation packed up my bags and we were all leaving to Redlands the next day. And so this, um, this girl that was living there, she was going to drive us out to California. And so that was my plan. I, I walked at my graduation. It was awesome. And then I, I went to Alex and Shannon's house. I fell asleep on their couch. I woke up the next morning and we were driving to Redlands and that was the first time I'd really ever gone there. And so we were there for maybe like a week and maybe three or four days into that trip, I ended up having it basically having an affair with this girl. That was when my world fractured right? <laughs> because it was like, I made this decision. Like she was like pursuing me and, and she was interested in me. And she was like in her twenties. And I was like this little, you like just graduated. Kid. Yeah. Yeah. I just graduated. And I just remember feeling like, Oh, and I thought she was just this ama- amazing human. She was this young person that had decided to stay with her partner and help him. And he, he had, been get, it was the, the weirdest deal. He was this, I mean, a powerhouse of a dude. I mean, really, he was just a, he was, he was incredible. Like legendary, notorious. Legendary yeah, dude. And yeah. just like a, a holy terror of a human and no one you wanted to mess with. And he hated everyone. I just ended up kind of like being around him and the part of me that loved both of them, I just wanted to make their life easier. And so I found myself running errands for them or just trying again, like the dad, mom wound how can i help make family how do i how do i navigate this? right and i would be kind to him and he'd look at me like why are you being nice to me and i'm like dude i just think you're awesome and he'd be like what like he he was so used to people taking from him or being manipulative around him or he was so used to his level of hatred and 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 real pain in the world um that it, it was almost like wild so we go to california and on that trip I, I make this decision and we have this like fling secretly while we're in California. And then we drive back, we come back to, she needed someone to drive back with her to Salt Lake. And I just remember thinking, I'll go to the dentist. I'll see my mom again real quick. And then I'll just Greyhound back to Redlands. And I think that's it, you know, but I'm totally double-minded at this point because now I've had this connection with this person. It's completely out of line to be very clear the judgment I have against myself at this point is, oh, Tommy, you think you're a good guy? You just cheated on a dude in a wheelchair. That's who you are. You're the worst. Like you totally took advantage of this guy. Like you are a coward. You're a snake. You're a liar. 
and you totally understand this girl and you totally care about her and she totally cares about you too and this is the weirdest world you've ever been in your life so it was like i literally felt like a glass mirror like just fracturing and so i remember going back to utah they're at each other's throats again because they were really having a hard time in their relationship at this point too it's like midnight by the time we get back to salt lake and i go to sit in the little spare room and i'm like up I don't know what to do because now I'm in their house again and I hear him go, Tom, come here. And I'm like, Oh my God, he knows. I don't know how he knows, but he knows, you know? So I walk in there, he's laying in his bed and he's like, Hey man, how, what is your plans while you're here? And I said, well, I'm going to go see my mom and I'm going to go to the dentist. And then I was going to take a Greyhound back. And he goes, why don't you stick around for a little while? It'll make things a lot easier. And I'm like, Oh no. And so then for the next two weeks, I'm up with him every night until two, three in the morning, talking with him about his life. And they're basically separating in front of me. And he's trying to like win her back. And she's sneaking away with me on the side. So I'm this 18 year old kid that on one hand is trying to take care of this dude who I, I can see with like real love and compassion, why he's so pissed and what he's gone through. And I have all this love for him. And man, I want him to be okay. And then on the other hand, I'm fully infatuated. And there's this sick, like soul tie happening between this girl and I, what is going on? And about two weeks in, uh, he called me and I helped him put his shoes on. And then I transferred him to his chair. And he's like, I, I think I want you to take her and I want you to go hang out with your friends for the day. And he said, the, the hospital is going to send a van to pick me up and I'm going to go get on antidepressants and I'm going to be at the hospital for a week or two. And I said, okay. And so my th thought was like, okay, I'll take her to hang out with my goofy high school friends and we'll just try to have a good time. And then I, he said, call me later and make sure that the van came to get, come, came to get me or make sure that I'm gone. And I said, okay. So I call later that night and he's like, yo, I'm just hanging out with some of the friends. And then the van's going to come get me in the morning. And uh, I said, okay. He said, I'm just hanging out watching cartoons and eating pixie sticks. That's what I want to do. And I was like, all right, tight. And I could hear his homies there in the background. And it was just like, he was just trying to get some time to himself and he needed a break and whatever. And I wake up the next morning um, at my friend's house, Shan's sitting at the end of the bed and she's yelling into the phone. Like, no, you need to tell me what's going on. You need to tell me what's going on. So I get the phone and it's her mom. And she goes, Tom, you need to get Shannon in the car and get back over here. Alex is dead. And um, he, he had gotten everybody out of the house and then he'd had his friend start a car. He had a classic Cadillac that, that didn't run. And he called a dude to come and fix the Cadillac to get it running that day. And so he'd gotten the Cadillac running and then told his one of his dear friends who just had no clue what he was planning. Hey, you got to hear the Cadillac run before you leave. I think, you know, and, and so he started the car, but we'd never seen him actually get over the little lip into the garage on his own. He didn't have like a lot of arm strength, but he, he waited for the car to start and then he wheeled himself into the garage and he killed himself. It's like really heavy. It was horrific. It's horrific. And his homie had a bad feeling about it. Um, his, his, one of his best friends, his name was Sean and he had a really bad feeling about it. He went to work at UPS that night and called at like 2 or 3 a.m. a couple hours later and no one answered. And he immediately drove back to the house. He was like, nope. He ran into the house and uh, Shannon's mom and little sisters lived downstairs. And the gas, the, the smell, the fumes of the gas were already so thick in the house that from the time he hit the front door to the downstairs, he was slipping on the stairs because it was so thick in the house. So it was really good that he came back because I think it could have been, it could have put everyone else in the house at real danger. And so 
by the grace of God, Sean got the other people out of the house, but then, you know, Alex was dead. And so I just remember the feeling of pulling up his note was the thing. So sorry, I'm trying to catch up. It's been a long time since I thought about this, but it's like his, his note, he had, he left a note and the first line of the note was uh, Tom Green as soon as possible, please help Shannon through this. And so I'm like, Oh my God. Like I think about it now, it's like messing me up a little bit, but I just think of like being this 18 year old kid kneeling in front of this dude's dead body, sobbing, going, I'm so sorry. I didn't get a chance to tell you. I, I'm so sorry. I, I blew it, but I swear to God, I will love her. I promise I will love her. I will help her through this. I'll make it up now because there's no way for me to make it up to you. There's no way for me to take it back. I cannot come clean anymore. Like, I don't know what to do. And so I was like committed. It was like, I'm fully committed to this person. I've lost my integrity inside. I've lost my identity. I have no idea who I am, but I will love this person. You've told me to love this person. And so that's what I'm going to do to try to make it up for you, make it up to you and try to make it right. Right. And so that was wild. <laughs> and, uh, we, we kept our relationship secret. Um, I remember that uh, to be honest, Al was one of the dudes that was looking at federal time. Um, before his accident, he was one of the dudes that was looking I think 25 years to life for some animal rights stuff. And so was Sean, the dude that came to get him. There's a bunch of his friends that were all roped up and there was dudes from Southern California that were part of those charges as well. And so the the court case for that whole thing was a few, was like a month and a half later. And I remember there was all these dudes from Orange County and all these dudes from Salt Lake, old dudes that were all there at the court, at the trial. And everyone was acquitted except for the kids that ratted, which was very interesting. I was cornered by them. I, I didn't realize they were all in town. I, I left a movie theater late at night with some friends and they were all there. And I was like, oh no. And they called me across the parking lot. No one else is there. And they're just like, we're going to take you around the corner. We're going to stab you. And they just called me out. I was like caught, like fully caught. I had, I think a can of bear mace and a knife in my pocket. And I walk up to them and they're like, get your hands out of your pockets right now. And I was like, oh my God, these are like the most terrifying people in the world to me. Dude, that's and I'm a like, real what? situation. Yeah, it was like a real deal. And so I, I just remember standing there, my legs began to shake. I'm feeling that terror and the adrenaline dump. And I just remember looking at all of them and telling them what, some of the things that Alex had told me about them. And then telling them basically like, you don't know what you're talking, like lying my way out of it. And also telling them like, F you. I've been there. I was with him at the end. You weren't. You guys tried to use him for his money. You, I was just like going down in flames, you know, like, like I, I wrote about it in Holy Name. I actually wrote about that encounter in, in a song, a little track called Open Skies. It's like, I, I don't know what happened in the parking lot, but like, these are like hitters. Like these were sketchy people. And like, I don't know, I'm standing there by myself and there's no, the only witnesses are with them. And it's like, I, I don't know why I didn't die, but they let me go. And I remember I lived in terror from that point forward. I just remember everywhere I went in the city, I wasn't sure who was going to show up. It was like fully, like everywhere I went, I was ready. I was fully on edge all the time. Just to put into context, because I'm putting myself in your shoes and it's like, she's in her 20s. She might as well have been, you know, 30 at that point. When you're 18, someone's 22. That feels like the gap of a lifetime. It's like, whoa, they're like an adult. <laughs> yeah. They like yeah. know what they're doing in life. And you're also conflicted because you're getting to know this guy in a vulnerable way. You're getting more and more depth about his life. You're understanding yes. him in a way that you've never understood him before in a way that maybe few other people do. Few people ever did. 
Like, that's the point is like, I was like, let in. And you're suffocated by the secret that you have to carry. Yes. That there's this double life you're leading. And you're like, I love this guy. I can't tell him they're breaking up anyway. She's pursuing me. I love her. I love them both in different ways. And I don't know yes. what to do here. Fully. And the easy road is to just keep going with it because she's kind of the one that's pursuing it, you know? Yep. And then when he dies, the weight that must have been on you is like hard to even comprehend how you would be feeling in that. The day of his funeral and everybody's at the house. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed where I used to sit with him. And I remember that they had, I remember where his guns were. And I remember you know, like a Smith and Wesson little handgun. And I remember holding it. And I, I just remember thinking, I don't have a version of this where I can make up for it. Despite my best intentions, I'm looking at his father who was this beautiful man. I'm looking at his sisters. I'm looking at his stepmother. I'm looking at his family. I'm looking at the weight of what has been lost. And even though it's not on me, and I say that because one of the dudes that was there that was going to kill me called me a couple years ago after hearing my testimony on a Sleeping Giant video. And he said, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was like your story, man. I would love to sit down with you because I think you're carrying like a whole lot of stuff that you don't need to carry. I was around back then. I remember what it was like for them. It was so wild. So I can say that with a, with somewhat of a clear conscience is <clears throat> I felt like I was the straw that broke the camel's back. And if I hadn't have done this, he would have still been alive. So I felt responsible for his death for sure. The enemy will capitalize on that all day long too. That kind of a stronghold, he'll beat you up with that day and night. And the weight of one life, right? Like this, the beauty of one life, even though he was like, I can say this honestly, I think he would laugh in his twisted way. This was not a good dude. Like he was, he, he was, a, he was not a good guy. Like there was a season in his life where his vow was to only go out once a day and to ruin someone's day once a day. He was so pissed. He was the most pissed. I mean, it was awesome, but it was like so dark. So I'm just saying like, this was not a dude that was a ray of sunshine, but dude, he was incredible. He was, he was a real one for sure. And he had tried to end his life a few different times. So I can see now as a 42-year-old man, oh man, I totally contributed to more brokenness in his world, but I'm not responsible for his his death. But I I could not see that day of his funeral. So I go, I, I'm sitting on the side of the bed, I'm crying. And I basically am like, I don't know how to believe in God. I don't know where God is. But I just remember thinking like, I think I should kill myself because the only way to balance the scale is like he dies, so I should die. And I just remember thinking, I'm like looking at this gun, I'm looking at the side of the bed and I'm just thinking, I'm not going to do it right now. That would be really selfish to all these people, but I think I need to die because it's the only way to, to balance it out. And I, I don't remember how it happened. I've said it from stage and I'm trying to like characterize the moment. And so, you know, I've said it the same way is I felt interrupted by a voice or a presence of something that was like, don't. Like, give me time. And I, it, well, I didn't get saved. I lived in this relationship. We got pregnant and I had my daughter, right? Like we, we, we built a home and like moved into it. We sold that home and we built another home and we had a family together. And then we were getting married and we got married St. Patrick's Day, 2002. And then we were building a life together. And as we were getting ready for our, our wedding, 
um, a friend of mine from Redlands, uh, his father committed suicide. I remember sobbing, thinking I should have been there. I should have been there with him. I'm having a response of like, oh, remember Redlands? Remember how you were going to go to California and you were going to start over? And it was going to be like this cool thing with your friends. And, and look where you are. And I was in this beautiful life. But I just remember feeling this like, oh, remember that? I should have been there for this poor kid because I know what this is going to feel like now. I know the pit of suicide and the trauma and the tragedy and all the swirl. And, and so we, before we got married, are like, let's move to Redlands. And so it's been a couple years. Everyone in Redlands is down for us, even though the way that our relationship came out was basically when we finally told everyone we were going to have a baby. Uh, we got married St. Pat's of 2002. We moved out to Redlands May of 2002, just a couple months after we got married. Um, my little girl's like one, you know, we buy this little house in Redlands and I'm super pumped. Like we're out here and it, this is so wild. And I, you know, again, like everyone just makes their own decisions and it's all good. Like it's all good. But I watched my wife fall in love with this kid whose dad had committed suicide and they ended up having this affair. I remember, um, going over to his house. I remember, I remember, I just remember feeling all this weird tension and there was this division and this gap opening up in my life. And I remember watching and just feeling like, oh, I was in a band with him. And I mean, he was a lot of fun, but I was like, I'm way cooler than him. I, I mean that like, I'm awesome. This kid sucked as far as I was concerned. Like I grew up I with was, him. <laughs> I'm saying like, he's awesome. He's great. He's a good time. But like, he's not a me. Are you kidding me? And I just was like blown away. And yet it felt familiar to me. And so I remember um, calling him and being like, Hey man, um, do you have a thing for my wife? And he's like, no, man, I would never do that. Yada, yada, yada. And I said, well, you know, cause she'd rather hang out with you than hang out with me and be a wife and mother. So maybe, maybe skedaddle, you know, maybe don't hang around so much. And he didn't want to hear that. And I remember thinking like, okay. And then I went to work and I came home and I remember her telling me, like I went on a drive with him and I told him that I had feelings for him. And I was like, oh, okay. What did he say? And she said, he, he said he had feelings for me too, that he didn't know what to do about it. And I was like, all right, I'll go talk to him. So I drive up to this kid's house. I'm looking at this kid, just thinking. Tommy, remember what it was like when you almost got shanked at the movie theater. Remember what it was like when you were caught, you know? And I'm looking at him going like, dude, I know where you are. And I know what it is. What I said to him was, I know what it is to be you at the exact same age with the exact same person. Don't do this. And I said, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to hook up with her. And in a couple of years, you're going to leave and you're going to go somewhere new. And she's going to leave you. And he just could not hear it. I was staying with Eric at this point because our relationship was like fractured. I know how this is going to go. Like I know how this is going to end. But what I didn't want to do to him is what was done to me. It was the minute I was threatened and I was the, the level of shame and the level of fear that was put on me. All I could do was hide. And so I just remember telling all my friends, like, don't touch him. They are wrong right now. The minute we're wrong, they're right. And I can't have that. I want my wife back. I don't care. I want her to choose me again. And I think if we, if we can be patient, we can walk this out, but don't do anything. That was unique in that setting because you had such a, cause I remember, I mean, I was there for all this. This was like, right. I mean, we were 
I was hanging out with you almost every day. I feel like at this point, yeah. um, and <laughs> yeah. because it was trauma, dude, it was, it was wild. So and, crappy. And yeah. And the fact you, like you mentioned, you guys were in the same band together, which was wild. Yeah. And, and friends were like, I, I like, I want to do something about it. And it was so wild to hear you say like, no, don't like, don't do it. This was a big part of you really like becoming really a Christian, right? I mean, like this, this sure. was like where it all went down and where this God started it. making I mean, a big, this is, yeah. This was it. Yeah. This is that moment. So that's what I'd say too, Chris, like you remember it. It's just, I just remember when I, what I would say too, is like when I, when I was found by Christ, when I really met Jesus, I met him as a bridegroom that had lost his bride. That was, I just remember feeling like, I just love this woman. I gave everything I could for her, for the sake of this person. And I thought for sure, if you love someone as much as I love this person, this stuff doesn't happen. Like, and then I just remember reading, I would read stories and I'd hear stories of God talking to his people. And he would say stuff like, you used to follow me and now you don't. And so I just remember thinking like, Jesus knows what it's like when someone stops loving him. He allows people to walk it out. God just makes the sun shine. If you happen to be a piece of trash, the sun's still going to hit you. If you are the, this beautiful saint of a human, you get to walk in the sunshine too. But God's goodness is just indiscriminate. He just makes the sunshine. You know, and so I just remember thinking like, he's just so good. And he's so good at loving people because I, my experience was I'm sleeping with somebody else's wife. I contributed to the death of her partner. I'm a total liar, hider, manipulative snake. And he is being so patient with me that he stopped me from killing myself. And he let me live for years to bring me here. So he's super patient with people. And I just remember thinking like, I got to be patient she'll recognize that I have the capacity to change or grow. And maybe in our family, like we have a little girl, like there's more worth fighting for here. I think if we can, if I can outlast this loser, I think I have a shot. That was when I felt like I was becoming awakened to, I need God. Like I needed God. I didn't need anybody else's help. I, I was so lonely and so hurting. I had reaped what I had sown. And I was living in the, the effects of my own choices. And he was comfort for me. He didn't change anything, but he, he comforted me. Like he was my partner and I could share with him like things I was going through. And I don't know how to say it cause he's like invisible, you know, but I would be like, can you please help me? And it would, it makes me want to cry, but he, it was like, he would help me. Like he would, he would talk with me almost like I could feel him and he was allowing me to like be with him. And, and when I didn't have love in my life and I lost love in my life, he would meet soul needs, emotional needs, intellectual needs that I had that I didn't have a partner for. Like he, his presence would supply. And so I was like, he was real. And I didn't think he was real. I thought he was control and I thought he was an idea and I thought he was politics. And all of a sudden he is helping me love in an impossible way. And, and I didn't understand it. I remember Death Star wanted to do like communion at a show. And I was like, no, like I just, I was not into it at all. But then all of a sudden I'm confronted with 
this is the truth of your life, Tommy Green. What do you think? This is the life you built. This is what you get when you build with those bricks. Did the theology you've been building with your life, do you see the fruit of it? Is this what you want? And I'm like, oh my God. I totally thought I was smart. I totally thought I had a cool idea of you. And it was it was twisted up. And look at the fruit of it. But I, I had this goal in my mind of like, I'm just going to stay in this and I'm going to love her and I'm going to love her. And I'm even going to try my best to love him because if I love him, he can listen to me. Maybe, maybe I'll have some level of like influence to warn him off of where he's going. And then at a certain point I moved, um, I took Marin and I, I gave these, my, my wife and her partner, I just said, you guys got to figure your stuff out. I'm going to take Marin. I'm going to go stay with my parents for a couple of months. And so I left Redlands and I went to Georgia and I stayed in Georgia for a few months with my mom and my stepdad. And that lonely two, two and a half months, just me and Marin, my folks and like the Lord, that was when I, that was when I feel like I actually heard like the voice of the spirit of God. I, I started dreaming again in the night and I, I started just having like a lot of inspired moments with the Lord. And in that, I, I just was like, I didn't know you were real. I'm sorry. <laughs> can I tell people? <laughs> and I felt like he was like, yeah, you can tell people. So I, I got back and started meeting with pastors, told them I'm going to start a Bible study for kids that maybe like me, like don't want to go to church right now, but they need, they need Christ. And that was kind of the start of it, man. That, that started Tiffany, which was like the first Bible study I did at, at the apartment. Um, just before I got back to California, um, my little brother and a couple of homies um, beat the piss out of this kid that was with my wife when I was out of town. <laughs> and so that kind of ruined everything. <laughs> and so um, my daughter wasn't allowed to come over and hang out with me for like a, a while when I got back into town because I was staying with the dudes that beat up this guy. And that sucked. And I told them not to do that. And then I got in trouble for it, which sucked. Um, and so we got a new apartment with some friends and they had an extra room and they said, maybe you and Marion can use this room. And so, um, we started a Bible study at that apartment and that turned into kind of like our first church. This is like kind of one of those situations, almost like when you read the story of the prodigal son, it's like, you can sympathize with the younger brother and being rebellious and taking your inheritance and blowing it and being left with nothing. Yes. And yes. other other seasons, you're like, I sympathize with the older brother who's like, what? I've, I've been doing everything I'm supposed to, and you're really going to let him back in the house and, and the jealousy. And and it's funny when I think of this situation, it's like you're sympathizing with the young adulterer and the husband because you're like, I've been there, and now I'm where he was mm -hmm. before he took his life, and I can sympathize in both places. And you're like, well, I don't want what was done to me, but it almost sounds like you're kind of like, I'm going to love on them as, as a form of maybe I can control the situation. There's still that desire. Totally, to like I totally. can control it. Yes. If I'm just like, yes. I'll love you so hard that I can make you do what I want you to do. And God yeah. still used that to bring you close. He's like, Hey, what you're trying to do is not really going to work out how you think it is, but I'm going to nope. use it. And I'm going to draw on. you in, in a way that you've never been drawn in before. And it's yep. just cool how God orchestrates no, these so things, good. even out of the mess, you know? Yeah, that's so good because he won't let, again, the real kingdom, the kingdom is within, right? And so those desires, I would say like those, those, the troubles that we create for ourselves in fear and in pride and in selfishness and in self-preservation and ego and all that stuff that rises up in us 
you know, you're exactly right. And what I realized uh, to, to dovetail off of what you said, yes, I was thinking I could still somehow work it out. I could work it out. If I did the right thing, then the right thing would happen, right? Never mind that everything about where I was at and where I was living from and what was going on in my heart was like the curse of the garden. You know, you're going to sow beautiful plants and flowers, but you're going to reap thorns and thistles. It's like when I do the right thing and the wrong thing keeps happening, it's like that's because something is fundamentally misaligned. And so I was living in this place of going, well, if I do the thing you said to do, will that change the thing? And what ultimately it was, was like, no, if you do the thing I tell you to do, it will change you. I did a bunch of like healing men's, like Christian men's healing restoration workshops. They were like multiple weekends, multiple days. And I'm just trying to do the work, you know, in a weekend at one of the weekends up in Big Bear. I remember, oh, I'm the same age as my dad with a kid the same age as me going through my first divorce too. Oh, I could pin a lot of it on the sympathetic thing that I had in my head, which was you love your wife, you stay loving your wife, you win your wife back. But ultimately what it was, was I've created this horrendous broken world for this kid and I hate it and I don't know how to make it right. And I don't want what happened to me to happen to her. Oh, this is about me. And I got new eyes to see my old man because now I'm 22 going through a divorce, little tiny kid, just thinking about it going like, oh, like my pain has dictated to me the story about my dad and why he wouldn't and why I don't know him and why he kind of started over with a new family. And I'm just sort of like stuck in between. And in that moment, I'm looking at and thinking, oh, oh, my sweet little kid, I don't want this for you either. Oh, no, I'm, I'm the villain in this story, too. A lot of it was about me. I think you're right. I think you're more right even than you realize in terms of like, I think I was trying to manipulate the situation or trying to win it somehow. I was still trying to redeem it on my own terms. And there was a part of it that just, I hate saying this, but like it just needed to die. And, and I, and I was not able to let it go for a really long time. And I caused way more suffering to myself than I ever needed to. That became almost like a new understanding that I had as I was preparing to begin what was like a really, what has been and is and continues to be like, honestly, like the best, the, like the best relationship I've ever had in my whole, uh, I love my wife so much. She's like the garden of God for me. Like she's the best thing ever. <clears throat> I just, I was getting ready and I did, I, I didn't know there was this very real sort of connection that developed in my life between me and Christ Jesus, I just, I felt like, I felt like I wanted a real relationship with him, you know, like I, I wanted that. And that was what I, I didn't want to settle for a, a book because I, I felt like I'd experienced something and I knew, yeah, that, so that's kind of where, that's what brought me through those, those years. It was, it was always that voice and that the presence, it felt like he was real. And that's what I wanted in my relationship to Jesus. And I think that's what was so appealing um, to everyone around. I remember I've told the story many times, like well, the first time I heard you pray, you like dropped an F bomb. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and then and then you drop you followed it up with an S bomb to show that you accidentally dropped an F bomb in the anyway. But I, th- <laughs> and I think the I, real deal, yeah. man. And I think I just I think I remember you saying like, God, you know. And that that became like 
uh, even though like you were just figuring it out, like you, you had a oh. dynamic like relationship with Jesus and that's what drew everybody in. Uh, it's not like the manufactured or maintained or, you know, the show that, that draws people in or keeping every, keeping control even. It was like a thing where it was like, dude, this guy loves Jesus and just watch him struggle like in honesty with, with that. That is so messed up. Oh, God, listen though, Tommy, me. listen to me. That's that, that is where we're all at our best in a sense, like where we're all just yeah. like, dude, this is, this is where I'm really at. And this is what yeah. I'm really thinking. Cause you didn't have like the, the factory filters that a lot of pastors learn. Cause you were seeing like these punk rock kids come in and hardcore kids come in and just randoms come in. And they yeah. were, they were like for the first time, maybe in their lives open to hearing about Jesus. Cause it was so uh, unorth it was just so out there in a sense, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it was, yeah. well, like, I'm, I'm just saying from the, from the, what you would normally see, you'd have Ryan Gregson leading worship with a red light, with a blown out sound system, because we had had so many shows there at, at yeah, Amethyst. Everything was broken. Everything yeah, was broken. Holes, and holes it, in the wall, holes hole, in the stage. Holes in the wall, yep. holes in the stage. People putting hands through the wall with the Star Wars, uh, Star Wars on the wall. Um, yes. But it yes. didn't matter. It was, there was something, it started 20 minutes late. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, always. But there was something really dynamic happening that was based on you coming to the end of like trying to keep it all, keep it all, keep it all. And you've always been an authentic guy, but this is where you were clearly like broken and God was meeting you in that place. And you were, so you were like basically wanting to tell everyone what he has been doing. It's true. I mean, we had talked about probably breaking this into two parts and of course we're going sure, to, man. cause this stuff is so like relatable oh, and good. I really okay. want just, you know, all these different aspects. I think that's like why God loves stories and he doesn't omit the falls. It's like you get the valleys, you get the peaks. And uh, because that grabs our attention, that people aren't perfect. And none of us have made it. We're all constantly trying to understand, you know, who Jesus fully is. Every time I think I grasp who he is, I'm like, he's so much bigger. He's so yeah. much bigger than I think he is. I put him in a box. Yeah. And uh, that's an ongoing thing. But so in the next mm. episode, um, wow. we want to get into Sleeping Giant. We want to get into Runs Against Traffic. We want to get into the Holy oh, Name. Yeah. We want to get into you. everything sure. that God has done in your yes. life post mm -hmm. this backstory of, of how God grabbed this punk rock misfit that's bounced around, that finds his place, that, you know, is, yeah, all these things. And, um, for the listeners, thanks for sticking in there with us. Tommy, thank you for being vulnerable. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for listening for so long. I talk so long. I, I love it, that. man. That's <laughs> oh, good. Oh, it's good stuff, man. Thanks for being so honest. Hey, um, this Friday, the 17th, Holy Name is doing a live show that you can purchase tickets for. Um, Tommy, where can people see this? It's on a site called Veeps, V-E-E-P-S. And so it's a live stream performance in, that we filmed in Chicago. Um, it's February 17th. I think it's 8 p.m. Eastern, and it's going to be up for, I think, 24 hours. So you can get it on Friday. If you're not right then, right there, it's fine. It'll be up for a while so you can watch it. But from the comfort of the living room or from the safety of the Internet, please check out our first ever performance. It'll be awesome. Thanks for tuning in to the Voyager Podcast. If you'd like to reach out, you can reach us through Instagram at the Voyager Podcast or through contact at calvarycarlsbad.com. We hope this has been encouraging for you. Until next time.